All right. Welcome back to another episode of Bacon Wrapped Business. This is Brad Costanzo, and we are going to have a very interesting uh, show today. It's uh, definitely not going to be for um, the, the most absolute beginner of the audience out there, but this is an episode I've been really looking forward to because it's a uh, it's a guest that I've been following for a while. I've read a couple of his books now and I've uh, been following kind of his journeys, ups and downs, and um, some of the really innovative strategies that he's using to uh, build very, very big business, uh, public business as well. So today I'm interviewing Callum Lang and Callum is the author of a book that I just read. You can go check it out called Entrepreneurial Investing. And as you know, if you're a listener to the show, uh, I talk a lot about acquisitions and creative deal making and just thinking about business in an innovative way that a lot of people don't necessarily uh, approach it. And when I read Callum's book, I, I've got the whole thing just about highlighted and I, I couldn't put it down. I got through it. I recommended it to like three or four people. I said, you, ha you have to read this. This is really innovative. And uh, I'm not going to try to tell you exactly what this means, but I'm going to have Callum do it. Callum, welcome to Bacon Wrapped Business. Thanks, Brett. It's uh, yeah, great, great to be on and uh, great, great to hear that you got, got so much value from the book. That's excellent. Yeah, I sure did. So uh, as I said, this is a, it's, it can be a complex subject to, um, you know, people new in business, but what you're doing is taking a very, um, tried and true uh, strategy in the, I, you know, we can call it a roll-up strategy for people who are used to acquisitions and roll-ups, but uh, you're doing it in a way that, uh, as I said, is really innovative, but kind of take me or take the, take the listeners who haven't read the book yet through kind of yeah. the basics of what you guys are doing and kind of why, you know, your approach is so unique and innovative. Yeah. So it's actually, um, I think, I think people tend to get, a little bit freaked out when you start talking about the public markets because it's so far away from what most small businesses know and, and understand. And yet, actually, when I explain what we're doing to an entrepreneur, they get it straight away and they can't understand why everyone doesn't do this. It, it makes so much sense. Um, actually, the people that struggle to understand it are the ones that come from the traditional finance world. Uh, mm -hmm. the ones that come from sort of investment banking backgrounds and or private equity. And, and I'll kind of explain why. But basically, if you readers that, that uh, are not familiar, um, what we do is we create a publicly listed holding company exclusively for the use of good, well-run, profitable small businesses. And in effect, what happens is that small business swaps its private stock for public stock but carries on running the business exactly the same way that they always have done. So, you know, it's their brand, it's their culture, um, they're hiring and firing. And, uh, yeah, for, for an entrepreneur, as you know, um, retaining control is incredibly important. We, uh, you know, the, the problem for a lot of small business owners, and, and by the way, we're, we're talking our market is well-established, uh, traditional good small businesses, kind of the, the backbone of the economy that everyone talks about. Um, it, this isn't sort of high-tech crypto Instagram or, yeah, or, or distressed stuff. This, this is, you know, the, 
the landscape gardening company that's been going for 20 years, the aircon maintenance company, the carpet cleaning company that are quite frankly, very boring businesses, but just keep the, you know, the, they understand their clients. They deliver great results year on year out. Um, they're pillars of their community and they spit off profits. But the challenge for these businesses is um, they face something that, that we call the scale paradox. So they're too small to go for really big contracts. And because they can't get really big contracts, they remain small, which is always frustrating for any entrepreneur with ambition. Um, and then you get this very weird scenario around the value creation. So, you know, Brad, as, as an entrepreneur, the whole heart of entrepreneurship is creating value for others. So imagine that you've had a bit of success. You, you're one of these businesses, you're doing 20 million, 30 million, 40 million uh, a year. Um, to the outside world, that's a very successful small business. And as the owner of that business, you're creating a huge amount of value in the world. Um, you know, massive amount of value for your clients, clearly. Uh, value for the 100 plus staff and their families there's a whole ecosystem of suppliers and partners and landlords that all extract value because you get up and go to work every day and yet typically there's only one person that can't extract a, a commensurate amount of value from the business and that's that's you the business owner uh you, you obviously you, you're probably drawing a nice salary you're probably taking out some decent dividends at the end of each year um, but compared to the economic footprint of your business, it's negligible what you're able to, to actually monetize. Uh, and in fact, the only way you really can monetize some of that value is to sell the business. But, um, but there's a couple of problems with that. Firstly, not every entrepreneur wants to sell. You know, uh, most of us actually, despite the grumbling, we, <laughs> we quite like our businesses, we like our clients, we like our team most of the time. Um, and we like the challenge of, of growing our businesses. So we don't really want to, to sell it if we don't have to. Right. Um, but the bigger challenge is who's going to buy it? Uh, you know, there's just not that many buyers out there for small businesses. And so kind of the default option becomes to sell your biz, business to a, a trade sale, a, a bigger player in the marketplace. But invariably, those deals are always structured as a three or five year earnout because small businesses are often uh, very centered around the owner. The acquiring company wants you to come with it and, and wants you to guarantee numbers for the next few years. Um, but the problem with that, uh, as you know, Brad, is that once we've been entrepreneurs, we're pretty much unemployable. Yeah, we don't <laughs> like to be under the thumb of somebody else telling us what to do and what numbers to exactly. Do. Yeah, we're just not very good at being told what to do. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, in, invariably that structure rarely works out for the entrepreneur. You know, they're normally fired from their own company within six months or 12 months or they leave in disgust. Um, and, and, yeah, if you've spent 20 years creating value from others, that's a pretty rubbish ending to um, this venture. So yeah, basically what we said is look, we'll create a publicly listed company. We'll do it exclusively for the use of good, well-run, profitable, small businesses. Um, but the key function is that those businesses retain control. So when I'm talking about it to investors, I say, you know, the, the distinction that we have, we work with businesses all over the world. Uh, we've got companies in the pipeline right now in the U S uh, UK, Australia, New Zealand, um, 
across multiple different industry sectors. But the one distinction is that these companies aren't for sale. Uh, you know, the founders wouldn't want to sell them to anyone else. They're coming in to join us because they keep that, that autonomy. Uh, and they can, you know, once they're part of the group, they can go for bigger contracts. They can incentivize their staff with stock options. They can use our stock as a currency to go and do their own mergers and acquisitions. Um, so, yeah, it's a... It's a very, uh, it's a relatively simple concept. Obviously, the, the devil's in the detail of, of right. making it all work, and I'm happy to drill into to some of that. Right. Well, um, let, me, let, me, let me try to make sure that I want to make sure I got this and, yeah. and kind of also be the advocate for my listeners if they're the least <laughs> bit confused. So one of the concepts here, as you said, these are, you're not looking for companies who are you know, for sale, distressed, et cetera, like the ones who are trying to get out. These are well-run businesses, but they want to be able to really realize the value that they're creating and, and have a chance to get a, a, a bigger piece of the pie. And you know, their other options are just like, you know, sell their business to, to somebody. Maybe they make a few times, like you know, if, if the smaller you are, like a small business is gonna get let's just say, two, depending on how, how small you are, two, three, four times uh, EBITDA, um, yeah. just in general. And the bigger the business is, the, you know, if you got a business doing 10, 20, $30 million, et cetera, you typically are gonna get a higher multiple. But, you know, you know unless you're gonna grow from, let's just say you're doing 5 million a year to something higher, you're, it's, you know, good luck getting that. So you come along, you've got a publicly traded vehicle, uh, a publicly traded company, like a holding company, if you would, that then says, well, look, if you join us and uh, correct me at any point, if I'm wrong, swap your mm -hmm. shares for shares of ours in, you know, that's a very, very, very basic version of it. And we've got, we're bringing in other companies to do this. So as we bring in other companies and, and we create, uh, you know, many more, we're, we're actually being able to add all of the earnings together and all the revenue we're making a bigger company by bundling them but you remain in control and then ideally if the the aggregate of these companies are going to trade for a higher multiple in the public markets than you would ever get if you just tried to sell on your own and the public markets are liquid so after a, a while you have the ability to not only grow because you, you know, you have the resources of a public company, but because, you know, you have the ability to liquidate shares and, and as the entire company grows, so does the value of your shares. Did I, did I kind of get that right? Or did I miss anything? Yeah, no, no, that's right. But, but one of the, one of the um, I guess, key distinctions is it's not, um, uh, it's, it's not an exit. So basically the way that we structure it for companies coming in, they'll get a multiple of EBITDA on day one but it's a perpetual earn-in. So the more profit that company contributes the following year, the more shares they earn and, and so on and so on, which basically means that regardless of the share price, if you imagine the share price stays flat for the next 20 years, um, but your company is growing, you're able to go for bigger contracts because you're part of a PLC, you're constantly earning more shares uh, in that equation, which means that the companies in the group, and yeah, these, these are small businesses, they're across multiple different industries and countries, there'll be peaks and troughs, um, but the companies that do well in a given year earn a bigger slice of the pie. Uh, companies that plateau or go backwards, there's no penalty for that, but obviously that year 
uh, they wouldn't earn additional stock. So it's a very um, equitable solution. Um, and I think the, the other really key element to this is this isn't something that we've built with a, a desire to sort of sit and run the holding company and these companies sit underneath us. When a company comes in and joins us, when it swaps its private stock for public stock, that owner now becomes a significant shareholder in, in the PLC. They join uh, what we call a Senate, which is kind of the, the principles from each company. And so the, 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 the founders of those companies together make up 70% of the owners of the PLC. So they're always in control of the PLC. If they don't like the way that the direction the board's going, if they don't like any decisions, they can always fire the board and put their own board in nice. place. So, so yeah, we, we've built this very deliberately from day one, not for us to have control, but for the, the principals coming in to, to really own their own, um, you know, their, their own group PLC. That makes sense. And one of the things you said that it kind of slipped my mind too, and I like that, which is there's two ways to kind of really profit here. Obviously, one of them is, you know, I get, I get X amount of, sh like today I join your agglomeration, I join the, the PLC and I get a million shares or whatever, you know, and whatever that's worth. Um, and obviously if the, if the share price goes up, my million shares become worth more. But even if they don't, if I, you're saying that if I like 12 months from now, if, if I had a really good year and, you know, my, you know, the, the profits of my business contributed to the profits of the PLC even higher, I'm earning more shares that way. So even if the stock exactly. is flat, I'm making money there. Correct. Yeah. yeah. Now, what about in case I may be jumping the gun here, but I mean, the, it's kind of the elephant in the room. If, if the stock price goes down, which... You know, it does and your stock fluctuates, et cetera. Yeah. But if the stock price goes down because the stocks, you know, and stocks are valued in a lot of different ways, but ultimately it's supply and demand. And if somebody gets in there and starts okay. dumping stocks, which has obviously happened in the past to you guys, yeah. uh, or, or there's a market fallout or if just anything else goes wrong, um, yeah. how do you overcome that? Because I would imagine that's got to be one of the big, you know, questions and objections that people have right away. Well, what if the stock price goes down? Yeah, it's an interesting one. I mean, you, you mentioned that we've, we've kind of dealt with this previously. So um, I'll, I'll make a, a complimentary copy of my book available to, to your readers. Um, and in that, I talk about the first one of these that, that we did. And um, we, so we've been working on this for about five years and, and kind of had um, most scenarios thrown at us and, and sort of had some, some learning along the way. Mm -hmm. um, one, one of the key things that, that we learned from, from the first experience is that actually talking about the stock price is, is really the wrong, um, the wrong metric to focus on uh, when, because it's the one thing that we can't control. Right. We can control the fundamentals of the company. We can keep adding debt-free, profitable, cash-generating businesses into the group. Um, now, obviously, we can market the, the stock and try and get the word out to as many people uh, as possible. Um, but you, you're absolutely right. Basically, the share price on a given day, it's not a reflection of the business. It's a reflection of the buyers and sellers in the market. Mm -hmm. um, and, if, and with any small cap stock, uh, 
it doesn't take a lot of buy side pressure for the share price to shoot up. It doesn't take a lot of sell side pressure for the share price to just uh, sell down. And, and that's, you know, for some people, that's the appeal of, of playing in that micro and that small cap space because the, um, the multiples can be, can be so attractive. Um, so basically, when we have the conversation with business owners, we always do it on a zero share price growth model. So when we take them through, when we look at their numbers and we model it out for them based on their own forecasts, and this is how many shares you would earn over the next five years, <clears throat> 10 years, whatever, as far out as you want to go, we always do it on the basis of the share price being flat over a five-year period. Now, that's pretty un unrealistic. Um, you know, mm -hmm. the, the reality is, as an incredibly fast growth, because although the companies in our group are generally not that fast growth, and um, you know they might do five, ten percent a year, which is kind of a good good year, um, our PLC is incredibly fast growth. So the, the the vehicle that we've got at the moment is called MBH. It's a UK uh, PLC. We're listed on the German stock exchange, which is one of the most liquid uh, main markets in the world, and and very flexible for what we do. Um, but in the last 18 months, we've gone from uh, an empty shell doing zero revenue to 11 companies in the group doing £125 million of revenue, £11 million of EBIT, uh, sitting on about £4.5 million of cash, um, which makes us one of the fastest growing small cap stocks in, in Europe in, in terms of the underlying fundamentals of revenue. Right. Every new, company that, every new company that joins adds to the... To the exactly so, so that's the, the the pro forma so basically if they were with us for a full year that's what their contribution would be um so um uh yeah we, we're incredibly uh fast growth we, we make a lot of noise but cons consequently when you're fast growth and small cap you, you do get a lot of volatility in the stock i mean we our share price has been up at two euros it's currently down at, at 50 cents um, so really, we we just kind of say let, let's focus on on the earnings per share, which is the the metric that we can control. Um, every deal that we do is earnings per share accretive, which means that we're buying profit using our shares at a lower multiple than the multiple that we're trading at. Um, and I've actually put together a, a, a very simple animated video. Um, again, which I'll, which I'll send. Oh, that's great. Yeah, I'll definitely put that in the show notes. For sure. Yeah, because um, it, it's, it's a bit of a, um, it's a bit of a confusing concept because uh, I guess people's tendency, when, when you think about small business, percentage is really, really important. If you create more shares in a small business, you get diluted and therefore your share of the profits gets diluted. Um, but percentage in uh, PLC is almost irrelevant. It's the value of those shares that's that's the uh, the key metric. And so, um, yeah, that, that's basically what what we focus on. We we say that we the bit that we can control is the value of the uh, yeah the earnings per share. The share price will go up or go go down. But if your fundamentals keep going up month on month, year on year, um, the the share price will will reflect that. And actually, for us. That was kind of a really important distinction to make because it's it's this this sounds hard to believe, but it's almost as challenging for us when there's a run on the stock and the share price goes 
up very high, which again, it's pretty easy to do with a small cap stock. Sure. Um, you know, a, a lot of people go into the market suddenly and start buying it. And, and suddenly we go from 50 cents to five euros, um, which is not kind of unheard of in our world. But then we, we have the same conversations with people that going, oh, look, I, I don't want to join because you're overpriced right now. And, and yeah, I'm going to yeah. join at this price and the share price will go down. Um, and, and so basically there's no, you, you can't win that game when you start talking about share price. So, uh, yeah, we just say, hey, look, let's, um, uh, let's focus on, on the, the things. We, we always say to the businesses coming in, um, forget everything else forget the share price um you know you can you can factor it into your own calculations we won't we will always assume zero percent growth um but does the deal still make sense for you in terms of being able to have some liquidity in your stock to you know, take some cash off the table being able to incentivize your staff with with actual tangible stock options um you know, being able to go out and do your right. own acquisitions and all of these these things. If it doesn't make sense for those, then don't do it because you think you're going to get rich off off a share price. That's, that's right. The reasons. Well, and so we don't have to go into because you talk about the uh, the first experience in the book where there yeah. were some unscrupulous players who who were yeah. holding on to a lot of stock and then they just decided to dump it in the market and. Um, and I, I mean, this is obviously a thing where, you know, stock manipulation, especially of, uh, yeah. you know, micro cap stocks like this can be uh, a thing like, but is there a way, like, is there first, I guess the first question was, the, is there a way to help prevent what happened before from happening again? And is mm-hmm. there like, let's just say that, you know, a couple of years down the road, you know, we're past this hopefully past this virus uh recession depression whatever's going on um you know the stock price is now at five euros maybe it's at 10 and Mm -hmm. somebody decides to uh go in massive shorting and just really really suppress it uh Mm -hmm. you know down so it's one thing to say well don't worry too much about it but i would think that that's a really a really valid concern that well wait a minute like i could swap all my shares with you right now and just Mm -hmm. because the market i could get like couldn't i get decimated if if things go wrong in the market that i have no control over even though my business is growing my wealth is now evaporating like how do you how do you really overcome that very yeah so so, so there's a there's a there's a lot to unpack in 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 all of that but um Short, short answer to the last part of your question is um, one of the tools that we use to protect downside for companies coming in is they can take up to 50% of their initial consideration in a bond that, that we issue. So basically it says, um, you know, say, they're, say they're due to get a million uh, dollars worth of shares on day one. Um, they can elect to take half a million of that in our bond, which is a five-year bond that pays 5% a, a year. So that just kind of protects their downside and, and the other 50% goes to the upside. Um, without kind of going into too, too much details on uh, of the, the first one, but yeah, I mean, fundamentally what happened was somebody broke, broke the law and illegally dumped shares. Um, we can't help, yeah, if somebody chooses to break the law, uh, again, um, it happens. Yeah, it, it, it happens. There's a limit to what you can do. I think there's a couple of things we we learned um, 
it, you know, it always sounds a little bit uh, lame when big companies talk about their values, but we took the, you know, one of our core values is trust. Um, and, you know, our whole model is based on, we trust small businesses. Somebody that's spent 20, 30 years building their company um, is not going to destroy their own company just to get one over on us. Like, you know, that's, that goes against the inherent DNA of, of an entrepreneur. Um, and the mistake that we made through uh, naivety was when we went into the public markets, we kind of had that same, um, you know, we came from the world of small business where small business owners create value for others and then figure out how they're going to get rewarded somewhere down the future. Yeah. Um, and we, we suddenly moved into the capital markets where, um, uh, the vast majority or certainly a, a large amount of people have no interest in creating value. It's just about, um, stock and, and, you know, getting in and getting out. And, you know, if you can spread rumors on an online forum to manipulate a share price, that's, that's what you'll do. Um, and we, we were new to that world and, and kind of, it came, came as a bit of a, a shock. And so I think one of the things, um, that we learned from that was first of all, you know, small businesses often tend to look at invest the investor community as one homogenous group. Yeah, you know, if you're an investor, you've got money to invest, and um, I, I should go and pitch to you my my product. Uh, yet that kind of neglects the fact you've got angel investors that have a very different remit from hedge funds. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're, they're all investors, but it's a completely different. Um, world and so what we discovered was you know it was very enticing when we first got into that space because everyone was offering to throw money at us and so whereas we were very selective of the businesses that we brought on we weren't at all selective of the investors we brought on and, and we paid the price for that um, consequently sort of five years later and we've discovered that actually there are some investors out there with values. Uh, there are investors out there that are patient capital, that love the small cap space, that love what we're doing. Um, you know, family offices, high net worth, smaller institutions that really like our innovative model and, and um, are willing to back it for the long term because you know, oftentimes they've got companies that they want to bring into us as, mm -hmm. as well. So, now are um, these the back? Are these the backers who end up funding what you referred to in the book as the accelerated venture fund? Or no, so the accelerated venture fund is is actually a completely sort of separate entity, and and um, so some of your uh, more astute uh, listeners will have already pegged that while our while our model, the agglomeration model, is a great solution for small businesses to give them scale and liquidity. There's nothing in that model inherently that injects capital into the business. It, it was never designed to do that. Yet, um, if you're a small business and you swap your shares for a public, uh, you, you, you're owned by a public company, you suddenly get access to much, much bigger contracts. Um, the problem is you've still got the same resource base. So um, how do you scale up to, to serve these big contracts? So what we did uh, last year is we created a, a venture capital fund um, completely independently, uh, uh, arm's length from us, but the venture capital fund only injects capital 
into small businesses that are about to be acquired by our agglomeration. Um, so, and this was actually, uh, this solved a couple of problems. It sol solves a big problem for small businesses and it makes it even more attractive for, for a small business joining us because they now basically get uh, an equity injection of cash, allowing them to go out and win bigger contracts and, and scale up. Um, but it also solved a problem that we were seeing with bigger institutions that like our model, um, but because of the size of their ticket, their, their typical ticket size. So if a company, you know, if a fund comes to us and says, uh, so we've got one at the moment we're talking to that's, you know, their typical ticket size is 40 to 50 million. Um, now they couldn't just invest 40 to 50 million into our PLC. It would, it would smash the share price through the roof. It, um, right. uh, yeah, it wouldn't, it wouldn't make sense for them to do that directly. But what they can do is they can invest that money into the venture capital fund. Venture capital fund can take that 50 million and divide it into 10 lots of five uh, in, and invest five million in the next 10 companies that, that we acquire. Um, and then the venture capital fund basically gets, can get in and out of those. It, it's, it's like, um, uh, it's, it's like being able to invest in, uh, in Uber the day before it went public, basically. Right. Yeah. I really like that chapter in the book where it described that, like the whole thing was really good. And I got to that. I was like, Oh damn, that's, that's really, really innovative. Mm. It takes it all up a, a whole another level. It's, uh, it's fun. Right. Uh, one of the questions I told you I was going to ask, um, hmm. profit, the way profit gets distributed. Yes. So, you know, I'm a, I'm a business owner. And uh, I make a salary, but then I obviously have my own profit and distributions, uh, et cetera. So now whenever I uh, merge this with the, with the PLC, I mean, I assume I still get the same salary, but now you guys as the collective own my profits. How did dividends um, get distributed? Are they retained? You know, what, what is a protection I have to, to realize, okay, well, at least I'm, you know what I'm saying? Like, how do you answer yeah. that? Well, so, so first of all, your salary is probably going to go up um, because <laughs> most small businesses, uh, business owners pay themselves a rubbish salary and, and take what they can in dividends. And, and that makes perfect sense in the small, small private business. Um, so basically what we say is that before you come in, normalize your salary. Um, you, you need to be comfortable that you're on a salary you're happy with. Um, then when you, you come in, basically the group, is being the public markets are valuing the company based on a, on an earnings metric. So the more profit that we've got in the group, the, the higher the, the valuation. Um, now there's obviously there's a significant difference between profits and cash flow um, and, and EBIT and cash. Mm -hmm. um, so typically what happens is when a company is part of the group, um, they will earn bonus shares, um, you know, it's perpetual earning I talked about, uh, at around 300% of every incremental dollar of profit that they contribute. Um, but they only push uh, around 22% of their cash, uh, oh, sorry, of that profit in cash up to the holding company. Um, and that goes to, uh, covers you know, things like the market costs, the investor relations stuff. And um, 
the issuing of dividends. And, and we've always made it very clear that our belief is that a business, um, you know, one of the key premises of a business is uh, to return capital to, to shareholders. And, and so we want the business to be dividend yielding because a um, couple, of, couple of reasons. First of all, the business owners themselves, they're all used to receiving dividends and right. you know, we, we would rather they held on to their shares because they get dividends from them rather than sell them. Secondly, uh, the minute you become a dividend yielding stock, it attracts a different type of investor into your stock that tend to be more patient anyway, yield, um, people that are after yield. Uh, but, but interestingly as well, it, it puts us in a very small um, niche of companies that are fast growth and dividend yielding. Normally, as, as an investor, as you know, you kind of make a decision between do I go high growth or do I go yielding? Um, you know, the fast growth ones, typically they're throwing all of their cash at fast growth. Um, the yielding ones tend to be pretty slow burn, but they pay out a nice dividend. So if we can combine that fast growth, because every month we're adding new companies and new revenue and new EBIT into the group, but also pay a dividend each year, um, that does make us a fairly uh, a fairly unique option for investors, which uh, is always good. Okay, yeah, that, so that makes sense. One of the um, one of the questions I got here on the because I, I just looked up you know the stock on the on Bloomberg dot com mm. etc. Yeah. Is it is it true that because it has like zero dividend it, like the, the numbers just kind of look a little bit out that of whack? Yeah. yeah, is that just because so, it's not updated as uh, so it's one of the perpetual challenges of being a, a, a small cap um, listed company is, first of all, until you get to a hundred million market cap, um, most of those big guys like, like Bloomberg and Yahoo, they just can't be bothered to do, do the work to, to get you into their system accurately. Um, also, until they see your first year's numbers, um, they, they don't have a lot of data to work on. So um, for us, I'm not sure when this uh, podcast is going out, but our, we're announcing our first, our 2019 numbers on April the 30th. Um, and uh, yeah, after after that, you should see Bloomberg and, and Yahoo's the, the worst. Um, yeah. Uh, bless them. Uh, but uh, yeah, trying, trying to get them to... Uh, update our information. Okay. So, very hard work. so my, my uh, suspicion was right. Don't trust the, the, the numbers <laughs> besides the stock price. Don't trust all the various financial numbers on here. Cause I was like, that doesn't make sense. It's yeah. So it's just, just as a rule of thumb, a company in its first year, especially if it's below a hundred million, yeah. um, it's nearly impossible to kind of get those accurate numbers out to the big, the big guys. It's, it's very frustrating. Right. I can imagine. Uh, shifting gears, another question I had. So when, when you guys started to do this, um, the, obviously you, you have to have a public vehicle. Did you, did you buy a, a first, like an empty shell in order to uh, go public right away? Or did you actually start a business and then take it public? Like what was the, what was the route when you guys decided, all right, we're, we're doing this? 
Yeah, there's a, there's a few ways that you can do it. Um, with this particular one, we started with a with a SPAC, a special purpose acquisition company, which is a, an empty shell. Um, we we had a very specific desire to get onto the Frankfurt um, Stock Exchange, um, and and that's because the uh, Frankfurt is fairly unique in in that um, actually it's. Frankfurt and New York are quite similar in terms of their flexibility for a model like ours, which is why uh, Berkshire Hathaway is, is listed in New York, for example. Um, however, unless you're kind of at least a billion, preferably two billion, you're going to get eaten alive in, in New York um, as a small cap stock. You're just mm-hmm. getting uh, shorted and beaten up, um, whereas Europe's a, a lot more... Uh, there's a lot less kind of that negativity that, that you get in the, uh, the US market. Um, so we wanted to be on Frankfurt. Frankfurt doesn't allow you to list a SPAC directly, an empty vehicle directly. So we found a, a secondary market in Europe, actually Dusseldorf. Um, we, so we listed the SPAC there. We backed in the first three companies. Um, so a construction company and a couple of education companies. We then did a full prospectus um, with the UK listing authority because we're a UK PLC and that gave us our European passport, which allowed us to get onto the Frankfurt market, which is, which is where we wanted to, to get to. Um, gotcha. So, yeah, so it's, um, it's interesting. The book that we wrote, um, which I'm also happy to make, make available to your readers um, a few years ago is called Agglomerate and oh, yeah. Agglomerate, was basically that was written for the small business owner whereas entrepreneurial investor was written more for kind of investors looking at this model and trying to understand it um and um when we wrote agglomerate uh which although yeah it's a little bit out of date but it's still a, a good read if you want to kind of get more info on, on this model from a business owner's perspective uh, when we, we wrote the book, we really wanted people to read the book and go out and create their own agglomerations. Uh, that, that was our, our thinking. It's like, let's share our intellectual property on this um, because there's so many good businesses out there that could be better businesses if they were part of a group yeah. like this. Um, yeah, having been through this a couple of times now, uh, it's really difficult to do. It's, um, yeah, there's so many different moving parts to it so now we just say look if you if you're thinking of running an agglomerate come and come and join you know work with us first come and do a year introducing companies to us working with us to, on the investor side um yeah come into our realm of expertise for a year or so and then once you kind of learned a little bit behind the scenes of how it works um and you want to go and set one up we'll probably back you to do it because ultimately we'd love to have lots of these agglomerations out there but yeah very very difficult to try and do it from scratch on your on your own this yeah, no that's great that, yeah that's smart so that's and you know that actually brings me to one of the uh, topics that you mentioned um and you talk about this in the book as well so you guys have uh done several workshops on this model mm. right yeah. T- tell me a little bit about that like what are some of the reasons for the agglomeration workshops are they are they kind of to really help people understand this so that if they really like it, they can do kind of what you said is like, 
you know, in essence, work with you guys to help source deals and be a part of this and get kind of a over the shoulder view? Or is there some, or there's some other uh, aspects? Yeah, no, no. So, um, uh, I mean, pandemics, pandemics aside, um, (laughs) we we had been running these workshops. um, I think the, the plan this year was to do about eight in, Asia, Europe, and, and the US. In fact, uh, I just finished running one um, in LA down the road from you, um, or up the road from you, a few weeks ago. Um, just just got back to uh, Singapore in time. Um, but yeah, no, so, so this was um, this started off as a workshop that we ran for business owners coming in, really to teach them the difference between uh, being a small private entity and what it's like to be part of a public entity and kind of yeah, making sure people don't accidentally inside a trade stock or make a stupid announcement to the press that would, would impact the share price or um, uh, you know, how, how they get their financials reports and all, all of that kind of the, the nitty gritty of the, what it means to be a part of the group. And then what happened is we started having investors asking if they could come along because they wanted to, to be a part of it. And then we had, um, people that wanted to introduce companies or introduce investors to us wanting to come along because they wanted to, to know more. Um, and what was happening is we were running more and more of these and I was getting more and more bored of the sound of my own voice saying the same thing <laughs> over and over again. Um, and I also noticed that people weren't really, you know, the business owners were coming in with their own preconceived ideas. The investors were coming in with their own preconceived ideas. And, and it was very difficult to kind of get people to acknowledge each other's worlds, which is really important in what we do, because we kind of sit with a foot in each camp. Mm-hmm. Um, so fortunately, uh, at that, that time, I was spending an awful lot of time on planes flying around the world. So I, I redesigned the workshop from the, from the bottom up and turned it into a game. Um, so basically now what happens is... You come in at nine o'clock in the morning and it's a long workshop. It goes till 10, 10 p.m. at night. You come in at nine o'clock in the morning and by 10 p.m. at night, your aim is to have built an agglomeration to a billion market cap. And, and so we space that as a, as a three-year period over that 13 hours. So you come in, you, you join a board, you're a director, um, and you have to pick which market you're going to go on. You have to start pitching to small businesses. You have to start pitching to, you know, who are the, who are the investors that will invest in you when you're sub 100 million? Who are the investors that will invest in you when you're more than 200 million? Um, so you kind of go through this whole gamut of how do you pitch to small businesses? How do you pitch to, to investors? Um, and then all the way through it, I, I'm basically this, uh, evil <laughs> evil chairmaster who throws real life scenarios at, at you so mm-hmm. you know just before you're about to go uh, up on stage and do a presentation to um, the financial markets announcing your numbers somebody hands you a note that says you know one of your directors has accidentally um, been doing insider trading and the market's just found out about it and the sec's uh, once, <laughs> once no more, and um, and so like, and it's all stuff that yeah we've dealt with, that companies like ours have dealt with over the years. Um, but it but it makes it really interesting, and and of course what happens is obviously you, you learn a ton, and you learn way more when you're kind of act, act 
actually involved in making these decisions. But a big part of the learning is not from us, it's from the other people in your, in the group. Um, you know, finding out how people react under time pressure and under stress uh, is, is a really big learning curve for people. So yeah, it's a, it's a lot of fun. And, and if you, yeah, I remember reading about that. That sounds super cool. Um, and then, so recently the, the, the number of people who are they, are they, is it, is it still like biz owners, investors and potential bird dogs for this or the, you know, the people? Yeah. Who no, it, everybody? It, yeah. That, that tends to be the, the ones I and mean, we're, we we've had quite a lot of appeals to, to open it up to a wider market. Um, but I, I'm not really like, I don't particularly want to be in the events business for the sake of being in the events business. Um, especially right now. Uh, especially right now. So yeah, it's kind of, um, uh, I mean, if you've got a genuine interest in, in the agglomeration model, um, then, then, uh, yeah, I definitely recommend it. And I think it's probably the closest, you'll ever come to understanding what it's like to be a director of a PLC, um, short of actually being a director of a PLC. Yeah, no, so, I, can, I can imagine that. Yeah. Um, you know, backing up, one of the things I, uh, I'd asked you about, um, you know, prior to me hitting record, and I said one of the ways that I found out about you, your friend Jeremy Harbour, and um, some stuff is I'd read, a, I'd read an article on uh, the concept of a virtual merger, I think he called it, yep. where uh, it stopped short of going, of going public. And it was, hmm. I mean, you're obviously familiar with it, but the, um, for my audience, you might not be. And the, the, the basic concept was, was find multiple companies, I, maybe ideally in the same vertical or niche that you could, yeah. um, it, they, they would be exit-minded. You would get, in essence, an option to purchase the company, uh, roll that roll that up into you know your a holding company and then now that you've got the options you go take this to a bigger potential acquirer like a private equity business or somebody else and now you're selling what amounts to like several different contracts to buy these businesses right one of the things and i know that's that's one uh model that i remember i just read a brief article and it kind of got my my wheels a turning um and I, I, well, I guess the first question I've got just, just right there, just backing off the agglomeration model. Do you have, do you personally have experience with that? And was there a part of that that was like, yeah, that sounds good in theory, but it's actually harder to pull off because of X, because I know that the reason I bring this up is the agglomeration and publicly traded businesses, like that's a, that's a infinitely more complex type of, uh, of model. And I was just kind of curious uh, kind of how those two, differ just personal curiosity yes so i mean if anyone's interested in kind of small business mergers and acquisitions jeremy harper my business partner has been uh teaching on that that topic for uh, 10 or 11 years um and he he discovered way way before i did that it's much easier to acquire a company than it is to market your own company up to sort of the, the equivalent revenue. You know, you yes, it is. Double, double the size of your business in one deal rather than uh, try and grow it organically. Um, and I, I went along, I met Jeremy uh, about 10 years ago. I think it's the second ever event that he, he ran. Um, and it was for you know, just five, 
five people um, spent a weekend learning about the strategies that he had used to, to build companies. Um, and we, we stayed in touch and, and then five years ago started working together. But um, basically the agglomeration concept was an evolution of that virtual merger um, concept. And, and what he had, what, where he was getting to with that was small companies don't really have a lot of value. They're, they're very difficult to monetize. Um, the bigger you are, the more valuable you become. So if you can kind of get your ego out of the way and start merging with other companies to become a bigger entity, the value of all of them become much bigger. And I'll give you a, a classic example that um, uh, and I've run into many like this, but this was a um, three guys that each ran hosting companies. Um, and yes, yeah, so web, web hosting, and in, this was in the days before Amazon and Google and mm -hmm. Microsoft dominated. Um, and for five years, they had been meeting up at you know, two or three conferences a year. Um, and they all got on and they would go out drinking at night at these conferences and it would always get into a discussion. You know, we would be making so much more money if we just merged together. It would be so much more profitable, so much more valuable. Um, and then they would constantly just get into a battle about you know, which brand would we use and you know, I want to be the CEO of the whole group. And yeah, they just get into pissing contests about whose brand was better. And, um, and, um, what they were missing was if they all just threw their shares into a virtual company above that, um, you know, they could all keep their own individual brands, but the value of that holding company that now owned three companies and had that combined revenue and combined profit would be uh, significantly more valuable uh, than any of the individual companies on, on and more own. visible to bigger buyers because a lot of bigger buyers yeah. they don't they don't want to buy a company doing like two million dollars a year exactly exactly so yeah that that was really the um you know jeremy had already started working on that and and um he had been uh you know he'd been acquiring distressed companies for no money down and then working out you know, fixing them and working out how to sell them and, and realizing they couldn't get much for them. But if he put them a group mm -hmm. of them together, he could get much more for them. Um, then kind of the evolution of that was, well, actually I can get an even better price for them if I'm willing to take public stock rather than cash. So, so people mm -hmm. will pay a premium um, if, if I'd accept their stock rather than, than cash. Um, and so that seemed like kind of a, a, a good idea. But then what he realized was that once these PLCs had bought these small businesses, they then destroyed them. <laughs> Basically <laughs> said, uh, look, we, we, we want to buy you because you're entrepreneurial and you're innovative and you've got a great little business and we love your culture. And, um, but now we've brought you, we're going to teach you to be like us. So you, know, you, know, you need to put all of your employees on the same corporate contract. You need to renegotiate all of your client contracts. So it's on our standard template. You, you might as well rebrand you because our brand is better. Um, and at which point all the talent in the small company leaves because it's not, yeah, exactly. that's not what they signed up for. Um, 
and and so that that was kind of the um the the catalyst to Jeremy going well, why don't we create our own PLC um and not do that and uh yeah that's kind of the evolution from that. Now that's, that's fascinating. Yeah. As I mentioned uh, offline, like I'm involved, I've got a, I'm a partner in a, in a company. We're doing a more, uh, a non-public roll up. The, the basics of it, if uh, you have any curiosity or I haven't even yeah. really talked about this to my, um, to my uh, listeners yet too much, but you know, we, we, we realized that one of the, the hottest products out there right now is CBD, you know, cannabidiol uh, supplements. And it's going like crazy. It's it's an extremely, I get I don't know if fragmented market is the thing to, to call it, except that there's no real major brand leader. There's no brand who just completely dominates like as a household name in that in that space. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot, but there's a lot of people. Then they they'll hit a, a a revenue plateau because advertising for CBD is so limited from Facebook and Google, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So you get a lot of companies doing two three million dollars a year. Uh, and they'll, you know, there's, there's more, but they'll hit a, a plateau. Cause yeah, you just can't grow that organically. So what we've been doing is we, we go to one of them, for instance, and we are buying, we're raising capital and then we're buying a minority and it, the, the percentage differs, but um, we may buy, let's just say 49% of your business at yep. lower end of the market multiple but we're, we're, we're doing it with cash. We'll buy it at the lower end of the multiple and, we'll, and, the, and the much lower end. But then what we've got is over the next, over the course of the next year, if you hit certain performance benchmarks and if you're able to, uh, you know, maintain profitability, et cetera, then we will buy the remainder of your, of your company with our stock uh, as a swap at the high end of the multiple. So we'll buy the high end of the multiple with our stock. We'll buy the low end of the multiple with cash. Um, and then that, you know, that puts cash in the, in the bank, et cetera. It lets them, I mean, you, you understand what we're doing. The goal, the ultimate goal here, we've done this three times is to package up. Um, I don't really know exactly how many, five, 10, maybe even more of these brands that uh, are doing some really good revenue. And then obviously the economy is a scale of working with a you know, bigger company and having more access to capital, et cetera, that we would then be acquired by like a private equity company or somebody else or a bigger strategic buyer. Granted, that's all, you know, we hope that happens, but it's not, it's not as liquid, right? We'd still have to go yeah. find and negotiate a buyer in the, um, you know, in the private markets to take that unless we decided to go public, which I don't, I don't necessarily think we would do unless something else happens, but um, yeah. So this is definitely it. It doesn't have the same complexities as a uh, as starting up a public company, but at the same time, it do, it also doesn't have the the sex appeal uh, or and the you know of of being able to say, well, look, this is you know you're trading our shares. These are the value. This is the this is yeah. the liquidity, et cetera. So. Um, I, I'm really looking forward to sharing this episode with uh, my friend and the CEO of uh, CBD Capital Group on this. Mm. But um, yeah, so as I said, this 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 came at just a really good time because I'm watching closely based on what we're doing and what you guys are doing. And I remember I got off the I, I got I finished the book and I called him. I was like, "Go get this on Amazon today." <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for that. But and I and I just wonder. I don't know if it's. Um, you know, we've got a little bit of momentum. Granted, this this market has just put us into a 
deer in the headlights a little bit, but um, you know, I'm, I'm just curious if we start to continue down this route, at what point it may or may not make sense to go the model that you guys have been doing with, um, you know, the agglomeration and saying, well, let's make this public. So I, I, don't, I don't really know. I don't know if we're at that inflection point yet. Sorry. Yeah, I mean, I think um, uh, you've, you've already touched on the, the advantages. Um, so the, being, being public gives you the credibility and it gives you the, that sort of that tangible currency that, that people are more trusting. So it's easier to do deals and they can see exactly what's underneath the, the bonnet. Um, um, but yeah, look, I mean, there's, uh, you know, in business, there's a million different ways to skin a cat. Um, and uh, so you kind of go, go with what, what works for, for you. Um, exactly. Now, are you, guys, are you guys right now out there just continuously looking for good companies that kind of fit your mold? Because you mentioned that it's not necessarily in a specific industry you're looking for, um, but uh, like what, what are some of the businesses? And, the, you know, there, I may even have some listeners on this who think, wow, this, this sounds great. And after they read your book, they'll really get it. Um, what, what are some of the kind of businesses you guys are looking to continue to acquire besides, like you said, um, you know, profitable, well-run, et cetera. Are there any certain verticals you're looking at or looking away from or? No, I mean, we're, we're pretty industry agnostic. Um, uh, I mean, the, the stuff we tend to steer away from is anything that's that's too sexy. So yeah. cannabis right now is pretty, pretty sexy. Um, uh, and, and general rule of thumb, if it's, if anything tech related, um, my first question is, do, do you read TechCrunch? And if the answer is yes, then, then I kind of politely <laughs> end the conversation because it's not, not for us. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, the, our sweet spot is kind of traditional old economy businesses. Um, the average age of the companies that, that we work with is 20 years. Um, you know, this week we just acquired a caravanning company in the UK. It's 53 years old. Oh, wow. um, um, the average age of the, the guys running it, or the, the women running it, is sort of in their 50s or 60s. You know, they're, they're still willing to, they've still got another three to five years in them at least. Um, uh, yeah, they're not looking to exit. Uh, they like their companies. They don't want anyone that's going to destroy them. Um, yeah, even if they were big enough to sell to private equity, I like to think most of them are too sensible to sell to private equity. The idea yeah. of having some 32-year-old come in and uh, yeah, with an MBA and tell you how you should run your business properly and fire half <laughs> your staff, just saddle it with tons of debt just doesn't really resonate with, with our kind of crowd. I get um, it. And it doesn't, does it matter at all what country somebody's in, if they're in the U S UK, you know, no, we've got, we've got some, um, so between uh, myself and Jeremy, so Jeremy runs, um, it's so just touching on that and going back to that. So he runs an event called Harbor club events. Um, so if you do a search for harborclubevents.com, mm-hmm. um, and, yeah, pandemics aside, we normally do um, Miami, LA, and Boston, but also Europe and, and uh, Asia. Um, and that's a, a great three-day course. Um, but And that kind of gives us a lot of our deal flow uh, and a lot of the introducers. Um, and then I tag on the agglomeration workshop on that. But we've got some fantastic companies 
coming through the US, um, Canada, New Zealand, Australia, ten, tends to be English language, English rule of law is, mm -hmm. the, is the low low hanging fruit for us. Makes sense. Um, but, but yeah, we get... I mean, are, we there get revenue, the, are there revenue minimums that you're looking at? Uh, so it's more EBIT. We're, we're tending to favor companies that are doing at least a million of EBIT and above. Gotcha. And uh, that's kind of, yeah, normally by that point, they've sorted out a lot of the internal stuff. Oh, you know, when, we, when we wrote the agglomerate book, we had a lower target. I think we were saying like 400,000 and we were getting companies that were 200,000 and we're like, yeah, okay, we'll, we'll bring you in. But what you find with those smaller companies is the CFO is also the HR manager, the IT manager, the coffee boy, um, <laughs> and, and, and trying to produce accurate financials on a monthly basis was nearly killing them. Um, so yeah, normally by the time companies got a million in EBIT, um, they, they tend to be fairly grown up. Um, but yeah, like I mean, we, we get inundated with, uh, deal flow um so i mean for a couple of years i've been saying we get about a thousand a year so wow two or three two or three a day um but actually in the last three to six months i'd say it's kind of close to five to ten a day um now not not everyone is right and you know, we probably end up doing 15 to 20 acquisitions uh of deals a, a year um and basically anyone that applies we send them a copy of the agglomerate book um uh, that gets rid of everyone that can't read, which is a, <laughs> a good start, but it also gets rid of anyone that's kind of you know, thinks this is an exit or you know, yeah. maybe they're too early stage for us or yeah, the wrong, wrong space. So how um, long between when somebody applies when they're a really pretty good fit, how long does it typically hmm. take between application due diligence and maybe closing the deal i mean just i obviously yeah. some take longer than others but is it a yeah of course i mean we've got we typically have 30 to 40 going through due diligence at any given point and that can um you know we've had companies in that pipeline that we started the conversation 18 months ago and yeah, it's just stuff stuff keeps coming up um, I think the quickest quickest from first phone call to announcing to the market that they'd gone public through us was 10 weeks okay. um, but that was because they had all of their due diligence kind of set up and and ready to go because they and, and they'd been doing another deal and then they saw us and decided that we were a much better option for them um but they were already kind of set up and and geared to go um but i'd say three three to six months is probably um uh the, the kind of time frame and, and basically there's the only cost that the company will incur is uh, and it can even in, occur after you've joined so we can announce and get you into the group but at some point you have to have audited financials because your compensation is based on sure. audited financials and, and most small businesses don't have that. Um, but that's the only cost that you incur uh, prior to, to coming in. Nice. Um, yeah. uh, has there, I mean, are there any, um, with this, with this existing climate right now, obviously, I mean, <laughs> there's a whole bunch of unknowns, but has it, yeah. Has it really pushed pause on some of the stuff you guys are doing? Is it still? No, actually, it's, um, I posted about this on, on LinkedIn recently. It's, yeah, for five years, people have been, one of the big questions is always, 
from a company coming in or what happens if there's another global downturn. Um, now, I was a small business owner that went through the global financial crisis. I, I had to lay off 38 and 42 staff and it was mm. the most brutal, painful, lonely period of my entire life. It was just horrendous. Um, and it, I always say, you know, if you're going to go through a downturn, I'd much rather be in a group of companies that have a vested interest in my success than sitting on my own trying to figure this stuff out. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I was kind of hoping we weren't going to test it quite so soon. But, <laughs> um, but, but it's been fantastic to, to, to see the way the companies, because they, they do, they all have a vested interest in each other's success. So, and they're all going through the same thing. And, and so every day we're all on Slack and Zoom and um, jumping on calls going, okay, look, uh, yeah, I've just gone out to my staff and said, you know, we need to do a 15% salary cut across the board so, so I don't have to lay anyone off. That's, that's our plan for this month. And, and this is how they reacted to that. And other people are going, great, yeah, that's a much better idea than, than what I was looking at. Okay, let me try that. And, um, yeah, yeah the, the communication from government is not always that clear. Um, and so, you know, those companies that have got lawyers that have um, and, you know, got, got the time to kind of pour through the, the new regulations have done that and then put it into English speak for um, others yeah. and yeah so, so there's really um, it's it's really great to see uh, how those companies pull together and, and actually we're not seeing we've had a couple of deals that were kind of close to announcing um, and they stepped away from it and, and in both cases they said look I would much rather be in the group than out of the group, but I don't feel comfortable coming into the group until I've secured a couple of big deals that, that are currently on hold. Um, so, and again, that, yeah. And, and look again, it's that kind of that sort of moral uh, values that, that um, is fairly unifying of, of all the businesses that, that we end up working with. Yeah. They're, they're just good, good people. They like the, model um uh we've got other you know in in any yeah you know, the money hasn't gone away in, in fact quite yeah you know, there's a lot more being printed um yeah yes there so is. It, it it's just shifting into other places and and you know for example one of the businesses that we've got trains care staff um and they are getting in in the uk and they're getting absolutely inundated with people that have been laid off from their their jobs and want to to help in this challenge and want to be trained up as care staff so that they can go and and help so you know with with every kind of uh with every uh dark cloud there's a silver lining so um i guess that's that's the value of a portfolio uh, approach for for investors it really is so do you um you don't know what you guys are going to do on the new, uh, on the next workshops, et cetera. Is that still kind of to be determined based upon the new? Yeah. Market? So I think we're, we're, we're pretty much, uh, canceling everything over, over the summer. I think, um, uh, I, I, I'll send you the links so you can stick them in the, the show notes, but I think, yeah, um, the next one in the U S was scheduled for something like September in Boston. Mm-hmm. Um, so, 
we'll who, who knows? <laughs> <laughs> we will uh, but, but we're putting out we're putting out lots of content online. So yeah, follow, follow me on LinkedIn and YouTube and Twitter. Yeah, so obviously this brings us kind of to the end of this conversation. Yeah. But man, I've I've really really enjoyed it. It's it's always fun to be able sure, to um, to read a book, be just completely mesmerized by it, and just a lot of little epiphanies going off like ding 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 it's that's that's one of the rare things where like most of the business related books i read i'll get little incremental knowledge like oh that's an interesting insight yours definitely had that that oh wow i never thought about it like this before like that's really yeah, cool i appreciate that means a lot now you mentioned uh, a link for people to um or something that you know to yep. get the book so I'll, i will i will set something up so they can download a free copy of the book. I'll send that over to you. Um, cool. And that'll be in the show. There'll be a link for that in the show notes, guys. We don't have that set up, but we'll make sure that if you uh, click the link on the, in the app or in the, uh, on the blog, wherever you're reading it, we'll make sure we get that to you. And I can't recommend it highly enough. Um, are there any other, uh, are there any other big nuts you're trying to crack right now? Are there anything that, um, <laughs> you know, myself, my uh, listeners that's might that's... be able to be like, Hey, maybe we can help. Um, no, although, um, uh, the, once, once you download the, the book, um, we are going to do an online summit for, for anyone that's interested in, and, and the book kind of talks about three areas, which is alpha, which is getting, getting great returns on your investment, liquidity, and sort of small cap, micro cap space, and then impact. Um, so how you can actually do good with your investments. Um, and I think on May the 11th and 13th, we're going to do 11th to 13th, we'll do an online summit. Um, so, uh, yeah, you'll have a chance to get a free, um, free ticket to that as well. So, um, Beautiful. I will, yeah, look out for that. I love it. I love it. Well, Callum, it's, uh, what time is it over there where you're at? You're over in Singapore, right? Yeah, it's, uh, it's, we've been talking, haven't we? It's uh, 10, 10 to 11 in the morning. All right. Well, it's, it's 10 till 8 p.m. here at night on the other side of the world, but I really appreciate you spending a, an hour or so with your morning with us and, um, oh, and sharing this. I, I really look forward to staying in touch with you and you know, maybe, uh, maybe we'll end up doing a deal one of these days together. You never know. Yeah, I hope so. I hope so. Sure. Thanks, Brad. Thank you, Calum. Have a great one. And for everybody else listening, if you like this, check out the links in the show notes. Make sure you subscribe to the show so you don't miss this. And if you have any questions at all, if you want any further clarification, or if you have any ideas, or even um, you know suggestions for other topics or guests, please shoot me an email to askbrad at baconwrappedbusiness.com and say, stay safe out there. And hopefully by the time you're listening to this, we... Um, we're over the, the hard part of this virus stuff, but I will see you on the next episode. All right.